and welcome to The Current Thing with me, Nick Dixon, where we talk about politics, the culture war, and anything else that comes up. And today we have another top guest, the writer, commentator, and co-founder of Thoughtful Therapist. It's James Esses. Thanks for doing the show, James. Pleasure. Nice to chat to you, Nick. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a great time to get you on, actually, because you've just uh, had an interaction with Elon Musk, which maybe we'll get onto that in a sec. But just so our listeners know who you are, it, I'm sure most people have heard of you, but do you mind just briefly recounting your sort of story, you were you got expelled from your university, you got dropped yeah. from Childline, that type of thing. Yeah, so I mean, I, look, I was I was just a kind of lowly uh, civil servant, former lawyer, uh, and I was trying to start up a new vocation in psychotherapy. I was doing a master's degree. I was counselling children at Childline, um, operating, you know, under the radar, really, just kind of focusing on getting my qualification and trying to do some good um, with the clients that I was seeing. But then gender ideology and the sex versus gender war kind of kicked off. And I felt that I had to say something about it because I was really concerned about what the impact was, particularly on children of this. So I spoke out. I wrote a petition to the UK government. I did some interviews and I wrote a few articles. And for that, I found myself expelled over an email from my master's degree um, I was given the boot from Childline, where I've been counselling um, children for five years, and I'm now in the middle of litigation uh, against my my former master's course provider uh, on the basis of discrimination. Um, and since then, I've kind of devoted as much time as I possibly can towards advocating on behalf of particularly children, but also others in society, women as well, in terms of the impact that this ideology is having across society. And I believe you've raised about 120000 on your crowdfunder for your legal case. I have, which is incredible. I mean, I never, I never envisaged I could raise that to begin with. Um, and, you know, the sickening thing is that that's not even going to be enough. Like, you know, I'm, I'm two years into the case. We're caught up in various preliminary issues. You know, I'm still waiting on a, on a trial date. So I'm going to need to raise more. But I'm, I'm eternally grateful for people who donate. But it demonstrates just how strongly people feel about these issues. And mine's not the only case. I've seen other cases um, funded, again, hundreds of thousands of pounds. And it's it's a shame that people are having to part with their hard-earned cash on this, but clearly it's too important to fight. Yeah, and, and you, you totally deserve to get that money because it all comes back to de- defending children, sticking up for children, which, which is why I suppose you've done all this, and women. But it's um, it, what is your hope for that case then? What, what what's, what's a win in that case to you? Um, well, I think there's an abstract sense of justice, right? I, I want some kind of public acknowledgement of wrongdoing um, in terms of what they did to me, which you can't really quantify. Uh, I mean, I, I also do want the money that I spent on those three years back. That was tens of thousands of pounds. Uh, I, I also want compensation for the harm that's been caused to me. I mean, as I said, basically, my, my future vocational plans have gone completely up in smoke um and i want to send a message to institutions that if they try and do this to their students that they're going to face justice so there's a number of reasons why i'm taking this but i I never wanted to take a case i mean as i mentioned at the start i've practiced as a lawyer before Uh, i always said i wanted to stay out of the courtroom in my own personal life because of how expensive and time consuming it is but sometimes you've got no choice yeah they also probably didn't realize they were messing with a a former lawyer but yeah i mean (laughs) I suppose yeah, you have to get some sort of redress because they yeah they suddenly kicked you out basically overnight because of your views. They tweeted about it as well to add insult to injury. It was pretty disgusting. I uh, it's, it's it's shocking. I mean it's it, it feels so inherently wrong on many levels. It, it also seems strategically very bizarre. I mean they they literally threw their own rule book and policies out the window. I mean, I, I've never, I've never to this day had a conversation with anyone in the institution about it. There was no hearing, there was no appeal, there was, there was absolutely nothing. Yeah. Uh, it's crazy, you know. And they, they probably thought that it would shut me up, and it hasn't worked. So. And one thing that struck me from another interview you did is that you never got to even see the policies because they immediately blocked your email, they blocked you from everything, so you couldn't even see the policies they were citing that they were kicking you out under. What was the specific thing you said again? Uh, was it just that you? were doing uh, certain activism with, with, you were tweeting, what was the exact thing, do you know? The, the, the key thing is that uh, around this time, the government were announcing they were going to ban conversion therapy, quote unquote conversion therapy, and myself and various other 
practitioners were really concerned that that would have a chilling effect on the therapy profession. It would basically force therapists, we feared, into affirming children down a path of medical transitioning. So I, I wrote a petition on the, on the gov.uk petitions website, which any citizen of this country is entitled to do. And it got 10,000 signatures and it got quite a good response at the time from, from the government. Um, it was basically that. It was that plus a few associated interviews and articles I wrote about that. Um, you know, that, that, that was the extent of it. I made a point of saying that conversion therapy in the strict sense of the term is abhorrent, is disgusting. You know, thankfully, most of those practices have been criminalized many years ago. But there's a real risk of um, criminalizing ethical talking therapy. And I wasn't prepared to stand for it. And supposedly, according to my institution, um, that brought them into disrepute. Hmm. Yeah, well, it sounds like they're doing a good job of that themselves. But so, I mean, just for any of our listeners that don't know, they probably mainly do, but yeah, they're now using conversion therapy to essentially mean you're, you won't be allowed to uh, sort of say to the child, are you sure you want to go through with this? I mean, that, that's my broad understanding of it. Is that right? Well, the problem is we don't really know because the language is so vague and ambiguous. That's one of the real risks of legislating in this space. I mean, when the government put forward its last proposal, it said that the definition would include anyone who suppresses someone else's gender identity. But I mean, what, what does that mean, suppress? You know, it's, it's quite common for therapists to challenge things clients are saying. It's quite common for therapists to consider other causes in their life or and, and different options. So, you know, could could that be technically suppressing somebody's gender identity? I mean, possibly. Um, you know, and I, sp I speak to lots of therapists who say that if that legislation went through, they just would refuse to see children who are struggling with their gender, full stop. So that can't be a good thing. Right. That's terrible. Yeah. And, uh, you know, therapists may well take a sort of devil's advocate position just to reflect another position to you. Would that be suppressing? You know, have you considered this? You know, that could be, how, how dare you? You're suppressing me. You know, it, 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 is that in the definition of suppressing? Well, it, it, it could well be. And, you know, the, the, the term conversion therapy now is, is a completely toxic term and it doesn't it doesn't reflect uh, any form of reality. I mean, firstly, it's not really therapy. Uh, any kind of study surveys have shown that the vast majority of these kind of practices take place in religious or family settings. So it's a misnomer to call it conversion therapy at all. But I mean, I've come across YouTube videos written by trans activists aimed at children entitled how to spot a conversion therapist. And some of the examples they give are if the therapist misgenders you. Um, so if that's the threshold we're using for conversion therapy, then I, I really fear for any future legislation. It's quite clever, really. They use terms that people have a certain association with. In this case, conversion therapy, people have a negative association with it, and they try and tie it to that. Or it's kind of like they, they use the word educate, which people have a positive association with, or learn. I've, oh, I've educated. Howard from Take That. I've now educated myself, and now I realize I should never speak up again on anything. It's like they abuse words, and they say inclusive when they mean excluding people. Oh, it's it's all manipulation of language and, and wordplay completely. And this is the difficulty. You do, we're, we're speaking across purposes. It's, it's difficult to actually have a proper conversation on these topics and getting past all the kind of guff and bluster with it. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, conversion therapy, what people think of is some of the abhorrent practices that took place in the past, like electric shock treatment and, and cor cor corrective rape. You know, absolutely vile, disgusting things, which thankfully have been long criminalized. But this legislation is to deal with uh, therapists in a, in a therapy room having a conversation with their client. Yeah, yeah, it's completely abusive language, as you say. And, um, and is it deliberate? I mean, that's the question. I mean, this brings me on to something I wanted to ask you. I mean, are your enemies sincere about the well-being of children, but misguided? Or are they just ideologues prepared to sacrifice children on the altar of their ideology? I think a bit of both. And it's, it's not always easy to actually work out which somebody is. I think, I think there's people who genuinely believe that this is all in the best interest of these children, you know, um, allowing them to truly be who they are deep down. Um, but I would submit that they're utterly naive and misguided because we can see in real life the harm that's been caused to these children. Um, to effectively mutilating their bodies, um, and others, I I, I don't know. Uh, others, I think, are so swept up in trying to 
and rebel against society. I mean, it's 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 it goes hand in hand with other postmodernistic ideas and ways of thinking, you know. And I I will often see gender ideology come up in the same conversation as critical race theory, for example. So these things do go hand in hand together. Um, and this idea that everything is subjective uh, and everything should be challenged. Um, and it's 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 not helpful when we're dealing with things that are concrete reality like the immutability of biological sex yeah when you were speaking then i I thought is it a sort of rousseauian idea the idea that the child's sort of free and perfect and then we sort of corrupt him with society because of course a child has to adapt to society in any number of ways you know from learning how to use the toilet to like wearing clothes this ultra liberal idea no they're just you're you're suppressing their spirit which belongs to another gender it doesn't really make sense i mean as andrew doll always says it comes down to the idea of a sex soul you have to believe that their soul is the other gender. That's already a sort of mm. highly questionable quasi-religious view or pseudo-religious, perhaps. So, and then, then I was going to ask you, yeah, I was going to say about the postmodernists, because where does the gender movement come from? Is it, and because people ask this question about wokeness in general, whatever you want to call it, is it postmodern thought? Is it the Frankfurt School? Is it Derrida? Is it certain laws that have been passed? Is it the Equalities Act 2010? But then how come it's across the West? I mean, what's your take on that? It's a big question, but I mean, you can certainly see its roots in some of these postmodernistic theories. But you know, I, I think most of the population that are going along with this are not considering it in that deeper manner. Uh, I think it's managed basically to infiltrate its way into society through manipulating language, through shaming and guilt tripping people, through putting the fear of God into people that if they don't comply, that they're going to be outed as some sort of bigot. Um, And so it's created this kind of perfect storm, really, where even if people feel that it's not in their interests or their children's interests, they might still go along with it for fear of being, yeah, as I said, kind of outed as some sort of monster. Um, I mean, so, you know, in terms of the other side, proponents of this ideology, I think they played it pretty pretty smartly um i think they've played it strategically very well up until recently i think i think they bit off more they can than they could chew they've gone too far and now we seem to be seeing seeing a bit of a rolling back of all of this which is good but um i mean the fact that they've got this ideology i mean even look outside during pride month you know the the amount of major corporations who are happy to virtue signal with flags and pronouns and all the rest of it i mean it's it's impressive and I, I, I only noticed this. I, I, I joined fairly late to the party on this one. I only noticed this happening a few years ago, but it's been going on in one form or another for decades. Yeah, and a lot of the companies, maybe we'll come back to that, but that seems to do with ESG scores and things. They, they're able to get funding if they present certain views, and it seems to come down to their ESG score, rather than, obviously rather than any sort of sincerity. But on, on the previous point about about the way this has taken hold and, and whether people really understand the roots of it. I mean, I doubt the teacher at Rye College had read Derrida. She didn't sound like too much of a reader to me, but she was like, if anyone's missed this somehow, there's this video came out and this, this teacher was berating two children saying that they, they, they were sort of basically bigots and that it was terrible that they had their, so what would be kind of called gender critical views or just common sense views. And, and, and she said their parents were bad and they, they should go to another school because at this school we believe in this. And the media have sold it as like, oh, this was a, a person that identified as a cat. And they've kind of taken it down that red herring, which is there was maybe a student that identified as a cat. And people said, no, there wasn't a student. Yes, there was. But the bigger point to me was always the, how ideologically captured the teacher was in that video where she was telling the children off quite aggressively because they said you can't be a cow this is sort of not, there's only two sexes. And it just showed to me that people will just unthinkingly regurgitate this stuff. And it reminded me of the police when that policeman said he had to check someone's thinking because they'd liked a limerick about trans people. It was maybe a bit sort of mocking it. And he said he'd done a course and that you can have like the brain of the other gender. Like, oh, you've done a course, have you? So one of the dangers is just people sort of unthinkingly taking this ideology on and not realizing that it's actually highly contentious. No, oh, completely. And these courses are you know, ten a penny, and there's all sorts of wonderful quote-unquote charities who are going to come and educate your workforce for a hefty sum on this stuff, Um, you know, and employers are happy to do it because it's a bit of a tick-box exercise and it signals how virtuous they are. But, I mean, yeah, going back to what you said about the teacher there, 
it's it's crazy because th- these vocations should be you know ideologically uh, politically n- neutral anyway so they certainly shouldn't be shutting down or trying to shame you know young students because they dare to challenge or put forward different ways of thinking but it's particularly concerning when again i come back to this idea that what we're dealing with is is material reality we we say, uh, sex is binary and immutable and there is nothing to suggest that it isn't and that is how the, we've operated uh, in, in this universe since time immemorial. Um, and it reflects the law of the land as well. And so it's it's utterly bizarre that students who stand up for that can be yeah, shamed in front of their classmates by teachers. I mean, you know, and I don't know whether this particular student was identifying as a cat. I do know there's lots of students out there identifying as different animals and inanimate objects because I've seen them i've watched their videos online i've read their blog posts um you know so this this uh, and people are getting bogged down as to whether this particular student was a cat or wasn't you know it's that for me that's not the issue the issue is the way in which this teacher was you know as, as i said effectively shutting down um students who have genuine concerns about the impact of this ideology within their classroom yeah exactly i felt very much the cat was a, a sort of misnomer it was less important people focus on that Exactly. It was the shutting down of the, uh, it, yeah, it was the teacher's attitude that was so terrifying. And then when you realize that must be the case in schools everywhere, in many places. And one slight, slight left turn here, a question that's bothered me is why are the vast majority, or it seems to me, I could be, correct me if I'm wrong, it seems like the vast majority of these transitions are male to female. Or we did a story um, a few weeks ago on GB News about that. And it was, I can't remember the exact context, but it was like 97% of them, of the requests were, were going in that direction. Is that, is that accurate? Uh, it used to be, um, you know, hi- historically, it was almost exclusively uh, boys and men seeking to transition, but it's it's flipped now. Um, there's a new phenomenon which has been t- entitled rapid onset gender dysphoria, and it's kind of pubescent adolescent girls now. Um, and if we look at the statistics over who is presenting to the Tavistock over recent times and other gender clinics, it's the ratio is inverse and it's it's more young uh, teenage girls now um, that are seeking to transition, which brings up a question of why that is. Uh, and myself and others are arguing that it's partly on the basis of contagion. You know, gender dysphoria is a mental health condition. It is common for mental health conditions to pass between people via contagion. And particularly amongst girls and particularly amongst young girls. And we've seen that with eating disorders and depressive tendencies. We've even seen it more recently with Tourette's syndrome. Uh, Historically, it was almost exclusively boys presenting with Tourette's. Again, now there's been a huge uh, uplift in the number of girls presenting with it. Um, So this is telling us something about what's going on in our society and also in our schools, because I'll hear of multiple um, girls coming out as trans in a single class. Hmm. And are you, one thing I, I was going to ask is, yeah, it's interesting, it's, it's shifted now. So that sort of ruins some of my theories on it. But one thing, well, one thing I always wondered is actually, is it to do with misogyny is one question I always have. Because I felt, so you often see the gender critical feminist maybe term we're using, and they say this is, this is misogyny. And it's quite a useful uh, rhetorical device, if nothing else, because no one likes misogyny. So you say this is misogyny. And, and I sort of, I've been struggling with that. I think like, one way I put it is that some of the outcomes are misogynist, like a man in a female changing room could be seen as sort of a misogynist outcome, but I'm not convinced the motivation is misogynist because it seems to come from more like the radical left. And then I eventually read a Substack article, I can't find it now, but it said that actually it was an outcrop of uh, feminism, which is more what I thought. I thought it was more like a sort of continuation of like radical progressivism ending up at the, at the trans movement. Or do you disagree? Do you think it is misogynist at core? Um... I'm not going to be that simplistic about it because I think there's a variety of causes and I think people have come at it from different angles. I mean, we can see that by virtue of the fact that on this topic, there's huge amounts of infighting. And I see it because I, you know, I engage with a lot of women's rights groups, a lot of feminists, etc. And, and some, some factions are at loggerheads with each other over this. Um, e- equally, I- I'm not infrequently told to basically sit down and shut up because I'm a bloke, and so I should kind of leave this to women to talk about. Um, so, 
as I say, there's a, there's a lot of infighting, uh, unfortunately. I, I, I do believe there are some elements of misogyny here. I do believe that there are some elements of homophobia here. I do believe there are some elements of trying to take advantage for kind of the purposes of sexual perversion and, and take advantage of loopholes, etc. Um, but there's, there's no one simplistic answer for it. And I think if we try and pin an entire ideology that's taken over society on, on a single word, I think we'll come unstuck. Hmm. So do you think that misogyny is just being used more to sort of discredit them in a kind of fairly clever tactical way or, or, do, or perhaps those people saying to believe that's what it is? Well, look, undoubtedly, and I speak a lot about this, I mean, you know, w- women as a subset have been hugely impacted by this, whether it's the sanctity of their spaces, whether it's just the language used to describe women and, and what a woman is, whether it's fairness in sports, etc. So there's definitely something here. I, I can't say whether the roots of it are misogyny. You know, I could, you'd have to go and speak to some of the individuals spouting this nonsense and find out on what basis they're approaching this from. So I, I, I'm, not, I'm not ruling it out. And there's definitely an element of it, but I, I wouldn't say it's the sole cause. Yeah, it is interesting how conservatives, I mean, I've ended up defending, if I'm a conservative, I don't know, I've ended up defending women so many times over these issues on the TV and stuff. Whereas you think, whereas I'm certainly not a feminist, and you would think, you know, it's just interesting that the people that have ended up defending women on this are often ostensible conservatives. I mean, you do get some people who are lefties, like Josh on our show, who are big lefties, but, they, but they're very big on defending women on the trans issue. But, it, but a lot of the times, the left sort of go along with the full suite of sort of woke beliefs. So, yeah, I'm just sort of always trying to unpick that. But um, Well, you know, it's, I, I, I struggle a bit because I, I don't like... I don't like identity politics at all. Um, I also support and champion free speech. And, you know, I, I think that people should be able to debate and discuss whatever they want. And I don't believe in shaming people because of their political leanings or whatever. But, you know, even within this discussion, uh, you know, the, the realms of ideo- gender ideology, that still kind of occurs. I mean, you know, I, I, I don't talk about it very much, but... You know, I I voted to leave the European Union. Now that doesn't go down particularly well amongst uh, a lot of the networks that I engage in. Um, you know, I'm I'm I mean I'm not ashamed of it, um, but it it shows. You know, you can be you can be so wholly aligned with groups of people on one issue, and then they discover some other political leaning you've got, and you know. They can they can switch off or they can kind of write you off as being some sort of I don't know extremist or something and it's I, I think it's a shame particularly when we should be prioritizing what's important you know and like I said if, if children's well-being and safety is on the line whether somebody did or didn't vote to leave the European Union as far as I'm concerned is utterly inconsequential yeah that's absolutely mad to worry about that and, and exactly it is children's safety and that's why people have to speak up I mean if you can't draw a line there at children's safety, then I just have no time for you. If you, you know, if you're prepared to sacrifice that for promoting your, for virtue signaling or for promoting your ideology, you're prepared to put children at risk who are going to transition and then they, they won't be able to go back. I mean, this is a big lie, isn't it, that, as well, that people can go, can transition back with sort of no problems. Whereas hasn't this just been conclusively disproved at this point with things like puberty blockers that you can't go back? Well, it's, it's, kind, of, it's kind of obvious. I mean... It... You know, they'll make the argument that puberty blockers are reversible, i.e. if you stop taking them, you can commence puberty again. Um, now, firstly, that's not true because the study showing that it impacts brain and development and bone growth, etc. But actually, if we just think about the kind of social, emotional impact that this would have, you know, a, a child who is meant to start puberty at nine or ten and doesn't start it until 14 or 15, while all their peers in their school have already well on their way through puberty, that isn't normal. And you can never go back again from that. So it has untold social effects on these children. Cross-sex hormones can leave these children permanently infertile. I mean, you, you, you can't get more serious than this. And when we go on to things like sex reassignment surgery, which isn't being performed in this country uh, on children, but is being performed on children abroad, of course, I mean, that's the most obvious form of irreversible transitioning because you're literally removing healthy parts of somebody's body that they can't get back again. Mm. Horrific. Um, what did you think to that recent march? I wish I had it in front of me. We did, we covered the story last night on Headliners as we record this. And 
it was this story about this march saying we're here, we're queer, we're coming for your children, and then and this kicked off on Twitter. And then uh, there was an article about it saying, well, no, no, you've got to look at the full context. And the full context wasn't better. It seemed to be just like they were joking. I mean, it's not, it's not a great joke when you're in, you're in public and you're happy to say we're coming for your children. Not a joke I would make. Um, and I've been a professional comedian for 11 years. But like, you, I mean, what was, why, what was, was it just a parody of what the right thinks about them? Or was it just a weird admission? I mean, it was very bizarre. I'm, I'm wondering whether you should offer stand-up comedy lessons to some of these individuals. <laughs> um, but, yeah, look, I, I, well, I think it's quite telling. You know, there's no smoke without fire and everything is said for a reason, subconsciously or consciously. And, um, I, you know, I think we were told for many years that people just want to live a quiet life. Just let us be. Let us exist. But actually, from what I've heard, it's a lot about trying to impose themselves on other people. I've had, when I've spoken out about men using women's toilets, for example, I've had messages on Twitter saying, people like me have been using women's toilets for years. You probably don't even know about it. There's nothing you can do about it. I mean, that's kind of threatening and also just a bit creepy. Um, I've even seen, I, I can't remember this person's name, but... Supposedly, someone who's designed one of the types of chips that we use in computers and in certain laptops was transgender. And someone gleefully wrote to me once saying that every time I open my laptop, there's a piece of a trans person there with me because their chip is in my computer. Um, just very bizarre. Yeah. Yeah. You wonder about someone's motives. Did you see this case that just came out about the Essex uh, school? Where there, yes. there was a several assaults in a in a in a gender neutral toilet, and it came out that the uh, there was no written guidance on on toilets. There was no official sort of policy. There's no impact assessment done, and so they had these toilets. And apparently, if you're supposed to have separate toilets from age eight up, or something, there's some sort of rule. But only 28% schools, 28% uh, of schools have them. Again, I wish I had it in front of me. But did you see that case? I did. And it's it's disgusting and it's very saddening and it's exactly what we predicted would happen. And it's not the first school in which this has happened and it won't be the last school. But again, the responses I see from the other side are quite worrying, really. You think that maybe at a time like this, they'd be able to acknowledge, actually, yeah, this is pretty bad. Maybe we need to rethink some of this. But instead, I've seen online people saying... Um, you know, gender neutral toilets are uh, are absolutely fine. I've got one in my home, you know, as oh. if that's some sort of direct comparison. Or people have said, well, there was no risk here because there were individual cubicles within the toilet. But that, that doesn't really matter because this is still behind closed doors. You know, this isn't out there in the open. There aren't CCTV cameras in there. So it's going to attract possibility of, 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 of dodgy things happening, irrespective of whether there's separate cubicles within the toilets or not um but i i just it's 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 so horrific to hear about this and, and in a school of all places i wonder what would make them change their mind or accept they might be wrong i mean with ideology when it's that ingrained probably nothing but you know the isla bryson case did do that in scotland for a lot of people and obviously sturgeon had the financial issues as well but this was certainly radically unpopular when you had a male rapist in a female prison and this seemed to be one that like everyone noticed and it sort of went mainstream that do you think that might have changed some people's minds and if, if not that what what would change people's minds do you think i think it changed the minds of people who aren't immersed in this every day i think the kind of more middle ground uh, i think yeah it did change the minds in terms of those who are kind of hardened ideologues no no i don't think it did because again i saw the commentary on this and it was basically how dare you accuse and assume all trans people of being racist, uh, racist, or <laughs> Freudian slip, uh, rapists, um, you know, which is not what anyone was saying, again. You know, so it's this distortion of language, because, of course, what we're saying is, unfortunately, the vast majority of sexual assaults, etc., are committed by men. These transgender individuals are biologically men, and so, therefore women in women's prisons deserve the same protection from them as they do any other man, irrespective of whether or not they've said that they transitioned or have changed the length of their hair or their pronouns. Um, so no, I think, I think it didn't change hardened people's views. And I, I don't, I don't know what it's going to take. I, I actually am convinced that nothing would change how they feel. And I think things get a lot worse. Um, you know, on, on, on the sports front, I fear it's only a matter of time until some woman gets very badly injured or even killed 
playing sport against a man. Um, equally, if we see women's spaces like refuges and toilets and changing rooms being encroached upon even more, you know, I dread to think what's awaiting us. But I don't think it will change these people's minds because they, they, I think they believe this was an almost kind of religious fervor. Didn't, on the hurting someone seriously, didn't Fallon Fox already beat up hmm. a woman in MMA? Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, I saw, I saw that. Yeah, I mean, well, there, there we go. That's that's already an example of somebody coming to harm as part of this. Um, you know, and, and again, we're seeing a number of sporting bodies starting to do the right thing, but we've got a, such an inconsistent approach. I mean, you know, sex is either binary and immutable, or it isn't. Uh, you know, men can either become women or they can't. And we need a consistent approach, like across all sports and across all of society on this. It, it, this kind of pick and mix doesn't really work. Mm. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the, the ideologues will never change their mind. You just have to change the mind of enough of the public. And Andrew Doyle talked about it, I interviewed him on, on this. We talked about his book, New Puritans, where at the end he, he, he compared it to the Salem witch trials. And he said that they still try, they, they tried the same trick of saying, oh, that's a witch. But it just stopped working suddenly. Uh, there, there was this incident where it just, everyone just ignored them. I think that's what it, probably what it'll take, enough of the public to just start ignoring this rubbish and, saying, and basically saying no. And I think a little bit of that did happen in Scotland with the demise of Sturgeon. That was my take on it. Um, so maybe that's the way just enough of the public see it for what it is. And it is happening, like you say, a little bit in sports. We see Sharon Davis has a book out about it. We just saw Judy Murray tweet about it, who's obviously Andy Murray's mm -hmm. mom, pretty sort of public, well-known mainstream sporting figure. Uh, Martina Navratilova talks about it. And we also saw, not a sports figure, but we also saw Davina McCall talking about a podcast called The Witch Trials of J.K. Rowling, I believe. And she said, oh, this is a well-balanced podcast. I recommend it. Small things, but I do notice these small shifts and people just putting their head above the parapet a little bit, very mainstream figures. What do you think? I agree. I agree. I, I don't. I don't think it's going to be a kind of overnight thing because people are having to find the courage, unfortunately, on this one. But again, I, I spoke to somebody yesterday who is in Ireland, um, and they were recounting that last year they walked out. They're in a kind of small village, and they, last year they went down the high street there, and all of the shops had, for, during Pride Month, flags and pronouns plastered in the walls. And this year, there was barely anything at all, and she noticed that. And so maybe that's kind of the first step for people, you know, that maybe they don't put up the pride flag. Maybe they don't put the pronouns in the biography. And maybe eventually over time they get the confidence to actually stand up in, in front of friends or family or even at work and say, you know, actually, uh, I don't think men can become women. Um, so that, yes. that's the hope. I mean, if, if some children can do it, then adults should have yeah. the courage. I mean, and, and then there's the boycotts, isn't there? There's this... Bud Light boycott, which was massively successful in America, and the Target boycott, and then there's the there's a little bit of that over here with the Wix boycott. Looks like we might try and do the same thing. Then Starbucks apparently took down some of their Pride stuff. This was the claim, anyway. A, a union was striking in response to it, saying, "No, we want the right to put up our Pride nonsense." So, do you see boycotts as a way of, of doing this? Seems to be pretty effective. I mean, Wix took a bit of a battering over here, as did the share price. I mean, I, I kind of blew the lid on what was going on in Wix and what one of the senior uh, directors was saying, you know. But it, it was particularly interesting with the Wix because he basically was saying, you know, people who disagree with me on this issue, you know, but I think basically people who don't believe that, you know, uh, transgender people exist and that men can become women and vice versa, but that they're not welcome in our stores anymore. So <clears throat> when people were kind of saying boycotting Wix, I don't think it wasn't really a boycott in the kind of traditional sense of the word. It, it was if this guy is saying to us as prospective customers, we're not welcome in his stores, then we'll prove them right. And we won't bother shopping there at all and see how he likes it. Um, so. But I think we're going to need that because a lot of corporations are fully bought into this. Um, and I I sat in on some webinar that was being organized by various trans activist groups. And I remember one of them saying that they feel quietly confident about the way things are going to go in society, irrespective of whether politics and the media and even medical institutions turn against them because they feel that they've got the corporate space wholly court basically and and they know how much sway and influence these private corporations can have 
So that was when I heard that, that was quite chilling. And I've spent a lot more of my time since then focusing on these private companies who are just throwing this stuff out there in pursuit of profit, basically. Yeah. And isn't the problem this ESG stuff? I mean, Elon Musk said ESG, and we'll get on to Musk. I didn't mean to like tease that at the start, but I, I'm getting around to that soon. But um, he, taught, he said ESG is the devil. And ESG seems to be, we did an article about this on GB, where basically Tesla had a much lower ESG score than Chevron, the oil company, and Philip Morris, which promotes smoking. But it, highly unethical company, well, Chevron, whatever you think to them, but you know, Philip, I think we can argue that a smoking company is pretty unethical in many ways. They had a much better ESG score because they have a sort of pattern of diversity. They sort of tick the boxes of the Stonewall-esque nonsense, whatever it is. It may not be actually Stonewall in the US, but it's, you know, it's another version of that corporate something. There's some name for it, isn't there, that James Lindsay talked about. I can't remember now, but it's an ESG type thing. And it basically says, it doesn't matter what your company does, as long as you tick these boxes we want, you'll get this score. And then you, then you seem to get funding. I don't quite understand the funding model because... Like the Wix guy, you seem to be able to alienate your customers knowing that you're going to get the funding from these bodies. Or in the case of Twitter, they tried to shut down Musk's advertising by these big agencies recommend that Coca-Cola and McDonald's and five other massive companies don't go on Twitter. And that's how they hammer you. Somehow these companies have so much power and they're almost more important mm. than customers. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty bizarre. And yes, there's the kind of more overt funding that you've mentioned and sponsorship deals, etc. And then there's the kind of softer benefits that come with it. I mean, you know, Stonewall still published their list of kind of approved employers in this top 100 list. Uh, and there's a lot of employers out there who consider it kind of gold dust to be on that list because of the exposure and the extra publicity it gets them. And they're basically having prospective employees and customers being funneled through to them through these other um to, to these groups, these charities, these other organizations. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's very odd. Um, and they're not even thinking holistically again about all people's rights. I mean, you, you would think that a company would be marked on how it treats all of its staff, but you know, I, I when I saw recently that uh, Virgin Atlantic were celebrating the fact that they, um, now have introduced gender neutral toilets in, in all of their offices, for example, what about the impact that's having on women again and how that's making them feel and their rights as a kind of protected class? Um, that seems to go out the window because all they want is a trans pride flag and then job done, basically. Yeah, uh, Stonewall's a particularly bad example, or a good example, because they have, um, I mean, egregious example. Uh, uh, they have this diversity champions program. And you'd think that, I always say this, that Stephen Nolan's investigative work um, should have should have ended that you know he had the um he had this documentary on bbc where he exposed stonewall basically you want to get in our diversity table where you need to ask advice and how to get into it and pay for that who do you pay oh stonewall so this is absurd pyramid scheme and that should have ended that completely but it still goes on like you say and companies are still doing this nonsense yeah well it's yeah it's 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 i'm sad that it still exists although you know a lot of companies and other organizations have withdrawn from it but there's still i mean i i looked the other day at who was in the most recent kind of top 100 list you've still got police forces you've still got banks you've still got universities um you know there's large swathes of society that are still utterly wrapped up in all of this um but stonewall generally i think are a lot more discredited than they used to be you know i i still remember last year when they put out a tweet saying that their two-year-olds can be trans and they got absolutely massacred in social media and in commentary on this because, of course, that's utterly untrue. Um, and since then, I found that people just don't seem to trust them that much. Um, similarly with mermaids, you know, we're still waiting to hear the outcome of this charity commission investigation into them. Um, so, but they still, unfortunately, have a lot of clout and a lot of support and a lot of funding. Yeah, I know. It's shocking. And um, all right, let's get on to this Musk thing before I do the whole podcast and don't manage to get onto it because this is this is sort of topical as we record. So you, uh, well, you put t tweeted here yesterday after posting a tweet saying that I reject the word cis and don't wish to be called it. I receive a slew of messages from trans activists calling me sissy and telling me that I'm cis whether I like it or not, whether or not I like it. Just imagine if the roles were reversed. Then Elon Musk replied. Repeated targeted harassment against any account will cause the harassing accounts to receive, at minimum, temporary suspensions. The words cis or cisgender are considered slurs on this platform. And this was sort of quite interesting and controversial. This idea 
Now, obviously, you were getting all this abuse, but this idea, which is never pleasant, but this, this idea that cis was a slur, do you think that's the right direction? Now, some people will say, how can that be the case on sort of free speech grounds? But then if, if, if it's harassment, maybe there's an argument. And should you be able to harass someone with, like, should you be able to say a racial slur to people or even a sort of so-called mild racial slur like gammon, you know, is harassment a thing? Do we have to police it in this way? Do you think Musk was right, basically? Uh, I, I, I do think Musk was right. I, I don't think he was attempting to engage in censorship. And I, I kind of followed up after he wrote that with basically saying that all he's done is kind of restored parity. And that's all I was asking for. Because the, the reason I started this in the first place was to try and see, OK, I'm constantly being told that if I misgender somebody, even accidentally, that that could be the equivalent of a literal violence against them. So, well, if they're in, imposing labels on me that I don't want, and I tell them about it, how, how will they respond? Will they respect my wishes? And of course they didn't, because I had people telling me whether or not you like it, you're a cis, and telling me to go kill myself. Um, so I believe that Musk was simply just restoring parity there. Um, I, as I said earlier, I champion free speech. I believe that people should be able to say kind of what they want to say, um, which is why I don't kind of engage in my own witch hunts of trying to kind of shut people down. However, that doesn't mean that people can't be called out for the bullshit, to be honest with you. And so um, do I want to move towards a world where people are not having the word cisgender imposed upon them against their wishes? Yes. Do I want to shut down people who use the word cisgender and cancel them from social media, have them fired from their jobs? No. Um, you know, I, I, I don't think those things are kind of mutually exclusive. So... It's an it's, it's annoying hypocritical slur to say the least. But should they be suspended then for shouting, tweet shouting cis at you repeatedly? Well, Twitter, like every other social media platform, has got policies around harassment. So if uh, if what somebody is saying to you reaches the level of harassment, and it just so happens that it's because they're calling you cis or whatever, then then why not? Hmm. If, if, it, if, if it meets that threshold for, for harassing somebody. But d d no, do, do I believe that somebody should be suspended because they utter the word cis? No. Because Musk modified the rule on misgendering, didn't he? Because he used to be able to get suspended just for sort of so-called misgendering. I think he took that out. Hmm. But now he's, but perhaps the difference, so the difference is harassment then. It's not the word. Because yes. to me, the only, the only, with free speech, the line is incitement. And that line is drawn in, for example, the First Amendment in America. It's pretty clear fighting words. If you say, oh, go and, punch that guy now that's harassment but it's as Andrew Dawes said on this podcast it's not the speech there that's the problem it's 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 that you're using the speech as a weapon it just happens to be speech you're using but it's really the incitement part incitement immediate incitement to violence but short of that I say you probably should be able to say anything but but you know I, I was debating with Toby whether it's worse to sort of shout well repeatedly tweet a racial slur at someone versus the word cis or I said well, what about the word gammon just as a interesting example but he was saying the problem is with like really severe racial slurs like the n-word is that they, they shut down someone's speech because they kind of i don't know they i, I can't remember the exact like somehow they that shuts down the person from being able to use their free speech because they're so harassed by this sort of historically egregious word but i said well, where, where do you draw the line that seemed very subjective to me is that is gammon is, that's also a racial slur if cis is incredibly offensive because we're not cis as you said I don't know. That's a tricky one to me. But you're saying you're just simply saying I just want equal treatment on the extant uh, harassment rules on that platform, basically. Yeah. Well, m more than anything, I just wanted to point out the hypocrisy of this. I mean, my my original tweet where I said I said I don't want to be called cis, and I, I tried to mirror the language that the other side used. So I said uh, when when, when you call me cis, it makes me feel unsafe. Now. No, it doesn't make me feel unsafe. Um, but I was mirroring their language to see if they'd be empathetic to it, you know, if I could have a connection with them on that level. Um, but as I said, the hypocrisy is there for all to see. So that's what I was doing more than anything else. But yes, I do want parity of treatment, certainly. I would argue that actually calling somebody cis is even worse uh, than misgendering. Uh, because again, we have to come back to this idea of what is real and what isn't. Um, you know, calling a biological male a biological male, well, that 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 is uh, objective truth. Um, imposing this label on of cis on people is forcing them into an ideological framework that they don't believe in. I, I don't see how it's much different to trying to impose some religious framework on people. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, of course, it goes back to the old Norm Macdonald joke. Cis is it, a way of marginalizing a normal person. <laughs> Have you ever seen that? That was his brilliant line about it. And, um, and you remind me there of what Michael Knowles said on his show. So he said that there is a key difference. You're saying parity, but he actually said more than parity he wanted because he said there's a key difference, which is that this is the truth. This is simply the truth about biological sex, whereas the, the, the misgendering claim is based on a, on a fiction. So he drew a distinction there and said they're not equal. Cis shouldn't be allowed because it's spreading a, 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 a provable falsehood. Or, you know, or, no, sorry, that cis, yeah, something like that. I mean, Steve on our, on our show, Steve um, Allen on our show, Headline, has argued that he argues sort of for cis because he says it's just a scientific subcategory or subset that is used in science or something. But, so he used it on, the, on um, Victoria, um, Julia Hartley Brewer's show. And he was kicked off. She said, I'll kick you off if you keep using that language, which is hilarious. But he actually has been back since. But um, because he thinks he's just using it in a sort of very rational, sort of just simply scientific way. But isn't it that kind of pseudoscience, really? Well, yeah, but even the, the roots of this term, I, I, I'd say I posted about this again yesterday. And I, I'd say every other message I get is telling me that it's just this is from Latin that what therefore it's okay. I actually had uh, someone who's a linguistic expert who studied Latin and, and classical languages. Uh, and he sent me a long message explaining to me why cis actually is wholly illiterate. It doesn't even make sense to use it in the way that they're using it. It, it actually means nothing in, in the context that they're using it, um, which I may put out a tweet of that at some point, uh, although he went into a lot of detail on it because he's, he's a bit of an expert on these things. But like, so yeah, it doesn't, it, what they're saying doesn't even make sense. I, I, yeah, I don't care what language it comes from. I don't, I don't care if it's used in other contexts, like scientific context. I care about the context it's been using in here, which is, it, it is to shut people down. It's to force people into a box, into a kind of subcategory. Um, and, and you can see this because I, I will come across scenarios in which well, for example, I came across at some community swimming pool. They're running like, uh, like tr trans only sessions and things like that. Well, you know, I can see a scenario in which they're kind of categorizing groups of people into cisgender and therefore trying to, in their own way, also exclude groups of people on that basis as well. And I see it being used to shut down debate. I've been told time and time again in the past that, um, you know, I've got no right to comment on these issues because I don't have the lived experience of being trans because I'm merely cisgender. You know, uh, how, how is that helpful? Yeah, even if you look at the quick definition of it, it's cisgender, denoting or relating to a person whose gender identity corresponds with the sex registered for them at birth, not transgender. It's a completely absurd thing to define something as not transgender when transgender people are such a tiny percentage of society. So to define the vast majority of people as not transgender, also based on this uh, spurious claim about gender that, that's wholly ideological, yeah, it's completely absurd. So if that takes hold, yeah, and like you say, and of course it is incredibly offensive, and of course we don't follow their ideology. And people are now responding to it by saying things like, sorry, I don't follow your religion. But as you say, it's imposed upon you. The word cis puts you within their framework. And of course that's exactly what it's designed to do. Of course. But like, how is it different to forcing and compelling speech in other ways or, or putting labels upon people? I mean, imagine if, the, if em employers were putting pressure on their employees to put their religious beliefs in their signature or their disability status in their signature. I mean, how is it any different to that whatsoever? If an employer turned around to you and said, I want you to put your religion in your signature, I mean, you would think that this was absolutely atrocious, but for some reason, them encouraging you in a smiley way, put your pronouns in your signatures, if that makes it all right. I mean, it's the same thing. I know. And you just reminded me of why I couldn't ever work in the normal workplace. I basically have to be in alternative media where we sort of tackle these issues. Because any other job, if I was doing it, I mean, even the comedy world, I had to leave. But any normal job, put your pronouns in your signature. No. Okay. Like, am I fired? I mean, which is what happened to you. You proved it. I mean, you can't be in a normal job when this has become the norm. I couldn't, if I had to state my unconscious bias or say my pronouns at the start of a meeting, it, it was never gonna happen. Well, well, well I actually, not, not so long ago, had a job interview, and the very first words to come out of the interviewer's mouth were, please let me know if you'd like me to address you by different pronouns. And, you know, that sets the scene and the tone for what's about to come, uh, and, they think that they're being inclusive in doing that, but what they don't realize is that by saying that, they're actually alienating the vast majority of people who will be sat in front of them. Yeah, that's exactly it. It's much like the teacher at Rye College again, 
they've been captured. There's been a revolution. There's been a sort of stealth revolution. There's been a, a takeover by the, this ideology. They just think it's the norm. They think it's politeness. They think it's HR. It's like, no, this is a highly contentious, highly destructive, toxic ideology that we're trying to fight here. I mean, what do you do in a situation like that? Do you just walk out at the very question? I just smiled and said nothing, <laughs> um, to be honest. To be honest, well, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't even prepared to offer a response to it. Just, just smile. You realize you're dealing with a moron. Just, just smile politely. A um, few other quick questions, because uh, we're coming up to an hour, but I just want to quickly ask a few things. Are we doing better on this, Britain, than other countries? You mentioned uh, we're ahead on some, some uh, legislation. America seems to be doing particularly badly. We seem to be doing a bit better to the point where we're called Turf Island, which I think we can say with pride. We, I call my other podcast this week Turf Island. We started uh, speculating about a ride called Turf Island, like a Disney ride. Where you start at Turf Island, then you get plunged into a changing room, and then you come out back at Turf Island. Yeah, it was it was a long bit. Listen to the Weekly Skeptic for that that comedy gold. But Turf Island, are we actually doing better in Britain, James, fighting this stuff than other countries? Yeah, we are, which is kind of worrying because we're still not doing that great. But yeah, we we actually are. We're doing better than I mean, America's an absolute mess, as is Canada, as is Ireland. Uh, and again, even within our, you know, nation like England's doing a lot better than Scotland and Wales are. Um, but yes, I like we're doing quite well. I mean, you know, the the recent statement put out by NHS England saying that their proposal is to prevent puberty blockers being used outside of clinical trials. I mean, okay, I don't believe puberty blockers should ever be used even in trials, but that's a big step forward. You know, closing down the, the Tavistock is a big step forward. Uh, as pathetic it is, as it is to say it, the fact that Rishi Sunak has come out previously and said that uh, men, uh, that women don't have penises, like that's for us, that's a big step forward. Um, so you know, it, it, in the grand scheme of things, we're doing we're doing all right, uh, actually. Um, but there's, I mean, there's a hell of a lot more left to do, and I'm I'm concerned about the next election. I'm considering what I need to do in terms of advocating and campaigning around that. You know, I, I did a little quick searched the other day through all of the major political parties in the UK and, and what leaders have said on this recently. And every major political party leader, bar Rishi Sunak, has said in one form or another that women can have a penis. So that tells us about the state of play of politics in this country. I know. I occasionally step back out of my kind of day, day job of all this culture war stuff and just step back and go, hang on. We're just debating whether women have penises and can be men. And it's like, so do you ever just step back and just realize how mad this is? I mean, because we live it every day. We're so in this culture war, but probably when we grew up, or I'm a little bit older than you, but like, it, this is just beyond thinkable. So it's just, I, I sometimes just step back and go, how are we here? Rishi Sunak saying, you know, a woman doesn't have a penis. Well, like, yes, get in. <laughs> that, yeah, it's not much of a win, is it? Yeah, it's, it's crazy. And I, I feel so old before my time. I feel like those old, you know, old folks who say, oh, in my day. And, you know, like, yeah, I'm young, I'm 31. But, like, I feel like saying that to people these days. In my day, we knew what men and women were. Uh, you know, and I... The, the problem is the, the new generation uh, have been brought up with this gender ideology nonsense. They're being taught in the schools, uh, and we see that carrying through to universities and the shutdown of speech there. So, like, I'm... Um, I'm worried longer term as well. I even feel like even if we make some advancements in the short term, I'm worried that we'll all go backwards again once the students and the young people of today who have unfortunately been indoctrinated into this are the leaders of tomorrow. Yeah, unless they grow up a bit and, and grow out of it. But yeah, and, and, and you mentioned Ireland. Didn't they just, haven't they just introduced a bill that could potentially lead you to going to prison for misgendering someone, potentially? Yeah, they're, try yeah, they're trying to introduce this hate hate. Uh, hate crime legislation, which yes could potentially criminalise misgendering. Uh, you know that's I, I'm I, I'm from Ireland. I grew up there till I was 18. Uh, it makes me very sad to see what's happening in that country. Um, I think that they've just swung so far the other direction. You know they they introduced self ID. There's been recent recommendations about extending those provisions to children, so the children can self ID as whatever sex they want. Um, they're looking to ban conversion therapy, and we spoke about the risks of that earlier. Um, so I'm I'm very worried, uh, and and I hope that as and when things get sorted in the UK a bit more, I can go over and do some more campaigning in Ireland. 
And do you think, sometimes I ask on this podcast, is Britain finished? But maybe you can answer for Ireland as well if you identify more as Irish. I don't know. I don't know what, which way you identify, James. But, but um, do you think, do you have any hope for the future of, uh, of, of, of this country or Ireland? Uh, I don't know about Ireland, truthfully. Uh, it's been going the wrong direction for quite some time. This country will be dependent on the next couple of elections. Uh, I'm very fearful of the uh, Labour Party getting in. Um, I think we would take some major steps backwards if that happens. So we're going to need to pile the pressure on. And, you know, the Conservatives haven't been great on this either, but they're the best of a bad bunch, I think. Yeah, I, I agree that the, the Labour will be worse. Everyone thinks, oh, you can't get worse than these Tories. You can't get more incompetent. So it's like you can get a lot worse on the social woke issues. I'm telling you, it can get a lot yeah. worse. And, and will with Labour. I'm 100% with you on that one. Uh, sadly, that looks like it's where it's going. But um, what about... Here's a quick uh, digression. Are you a, are you an atheist? Uh, I don't really actually have a label for, for this one. I'm, I, I, I was brought up and was practicing Judaism for many years. These days, I don't really identify as anything. Okay. Uh, do you think um, Do you think the lack of uh, religion, specifically in this country, the decline of Christianity, has, a, a, has left a, a vacuum to be filled by this woke stuff? Uh, yes. Okay. Yeah, I do. Because, because people need, uh, as human beings, we, 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 we strive and have this innate need for certainty and belief uh, something bigger than us that we can get behind. And so, yeah, I do believe that the erosion of uh, re- religious beliefs has kind of uh, opened a gap in the market for, for this. Um, I don't really know what we can do about it. But I, I, I actually also think it's it's a it's a sign of our uh, privilege. And I don't like using that word at all, but I'm going to use it on this occasion, which is that uh, in the Western world and in, in Britain in particular, we're so privileged that we have the time in the world to engage in this navel-gazing and this self-obsessiveness. You know, people living in war-torn countries facing dictators and poverty are not sat at home thinking about their pronouns. Um, And I would say it's actually symptomatic of how privileged we are that we've got this time to become so self-obsessed, actually, uh, where our identity... Uh, is the most important thing and we lose sight of wider society and the wider community it's all about me 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 yeah good point and um i'm curious as well you're pro assisted dying i believe why is that um well it, a few reasons firstly it goes back to freedoms again because as i said earlier i gen- generally believe that people should be free to what they to what they want to do in life um and so it, if, if somebody doesn't want to live anymore, I, I don't believe that we should force them into staying alive. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to find ways to help people to live the best possible life and, and to stay alive if they want to. But I, I think of this particularly in the context of people who are suffering from the most horrific, uh, even terminal illnesses. You know, I, I've been a member of the charity Dignity and Dying for a number of years. Um, you know, and I've engaged with some of these people who have got, for example, locked-in syndrome. And I mean they're living the most horrific existence. And I think we're basically artificially keeping them alive against their wishes. Uh, and I don't think that's right. Um, and I, I find an interesting dynamic between that and, a, and a, an abortion as well, even, actually. You know, um, because we say, well, you know, a fetus doesn't have a, doesn't have a voice, so but we'll allow, we'll allow the mother to make the decision. But when it comes to you know, an adult who is saying, I don't want to live anymore. We're basically saying, tough luck, you've got to stay alive. Um, that that kind of seems to be uh, nonsensical, that position. I, it would almost, I feel like you've kind of almost got to have both or neither. I don't know if you agree with me on that, but. Well, I'm pro-life anyway, so I'm against assisted uh, dying and I'm pro-life. So I think I'm pretty consistent. Um so I don't think I fall into the same hypocrisy you're alluding you're, you're, uh, <coughs> to. But, but um, the concern for me, there's, there's the ethical question, the moral question, we almost don't have time to get into because it's such a big question I've just thrown out. But the, there's a crossover with some of the, the transgender concerns and uh, the trans, transitioning of children that you talk about, which, as you've said, there may be financial incentives to do that. And there's other pressures and ideological pressures and so on. Similarly, 
if we sort of systematize death in that way, it's very easy to imagine being given a leaflet. You sure you don't just want to die, you know, and it, it being incentivized by the state or by corporations to actually just offer much in the same way that if you go into an abortion clinic, you can you, people can very easily or you go or you don't. You, you have a child. You're not in an abortion clinic, but you can quite often it can be suggested. Do you want to get an abortion f- first rather than do you want to adopt or all these kind of other things or. I've heard cases where it sort of pre- it seems like it's pressed on people to an extent. Aren't you concerned that that would just lead to a sort of situation where, you know, the option of just dying is sort of pressed on people far too aggressively? I mean, it's a possibility and, you know, slippery slopes are things that we should be aware of. But that's why I would only want the most rigorous kind of thresholds in place. We've seen this in other countries as well. You know, I, this is I, I, I would only be wanting this in cases where somebody is kind of like terminally ill and has got, you know, a certain type of condition because we have to remember people are free to kill themselves anyway you know we decriminalized suicide many many years ago and so the the, the cohorts i'm concerned about are the individuals for example those who are struggling with locked in syndrome who want to kill themselves but physically can't so i don't but again that seems to be unfair why should somebody who's able-bodied be allowed to kill themselves but someone who isn't able-bodied be forced to stay alive well a christian would say that then they're, they're not but uh, and legally you're saying they are so that's yeah legally you do have a point there okay <laughs> i just thought i'd go into that quickly again because i just heard you say it on a podcast and it sort of surprised me i thought i'd just throw it out there um but i need to do more research on it so i can defeat your arguments um but uh <laughs> but i mean it's probably applies to lots of things but but mainly I agree with you, to be honest, so it doesn't come up. But one last question then. I always like to ask how we win this culture war. And I suppose for you, there's a specific how do we win the gender madness and then how do we win the larger culture war? Uh, on, on the gender, I just we need more people to ha- gain the confidence to speak out because as you, you alluded to this earlier, but there'll come a point, like with the witch trials, but there'll come a point if, if a large enough proportion of society are willing to actually say, no, I'm, I'm not going to stand for this, then they can't impose it anymore. And these co- and the corporations will follow suit because they're following the profit, you know, at the end of the day. So I think people just need to find the confidence and... I acknowledge the risks that it has for people, you know, and again, I'm an example of somebody who's kind of suffered as a result of speaking out. But I I have, I always say that I've got no regrets about speaking out. And if I had my time again, I'd do the exact same thing again. And I hope that that can instill just a little bit of confidence in people that even if shit hits the fan, that it will still be all right. And that there's a lot of people out there, myself included, who want to support them in that. Um, In terms of the culture wars more generally, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I wish I had an answer, but it's I, I, all I know is I find it very, very depressing. And I don't know. It feels like we're going to need some sort of bigger reset in society. Um, as I said, because I believe a lot of this is symptomatic of how privileged we are. I'm not really sure how we can kind of get away from it, S- save for an event that comes along that makes everyone realize what's actually important in life you know, say for some sort of catastrophe. I kind of hoped COVID would at least do that in a way that people would stop and think, okay, what is really important? But it it hasn't. So on that basis, I'm not sure anything will ever solve this. Right. Yeah, I thought the same. And and, and at the start of COVID, it did end it for about 10 seconds. People briefly sort of came together. And then it actually made the culture war worse. And it became a culture war issue, masks were a culture war issue, lockdowns and, and vaccines and so on. So, yeah, you're right. I was just trying to remember, I was just quickly trying to remember the, the bridge. I can't remember the name of the bridge, but, yeah, it's this at the end of Andrew Doyle's book, he talks about this bridge where they tried to say that's a witch and everyone just ignored them and that was the end of it. I'd love to have that moment, but, oh, well, I was trying to get a bit of optimism of how we could win it, but it doesn't look like, <laughs> it doesn't look like it's coming. And what are you going to do on a personal level? You've, you've been cancelled kind of twice, in a way, by your university and your job. I mean, what, what's your future? Uh, well, thankfully, I've still got a I've still got a job because I can keep a roof above my head. I mean, I, I'd still like to practice psychotherapy, but I'm waiting until the outcome of my litigation, which could take another few years. Um, in the meantime, my concern is purely continuing to try and speak out about these issues, to be honest, and particularly in relation to children. So I, I'm just going to kind of keep plugging away on that, basically, uh, until we get where we need to get to. Um, I'm trying to think a bit more short term. Uh, Because you never know what's going to happen, and I could easily be cancelled again. 
uh, I could have a trio of cancellations. Who knows? So. Yeah. Well, that, that, then you can come back on the podcast. This is who we love, the cancelled people. This is practically all this podcast is. But um, thanks, James. I mean, you're doing great work. Anyone that stands up for children, it's about the most noble thing you can do. So we applaud you for that. And where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter, occasionally engaging with Elon Musk. Uh, alternatively, you can. I've got a Substack where I put out regular articles, and I've got a, a crowd justice page on my litigation where people can donate and support my my legal case if they like to as well. So your Twitter is at James S's, James E S S E S, of course. And if you listen to the episode, you probably see it in the title. And yeah. the Substack is what? Uh, it's actually called Trans Transparency, but it's. Uh, if, if, yeah, I've got the domain. If you just go onto jamess.com, but if, if you type my name into Google, that will be one of the top hits. As will the crowd justice page, um, and you can sign up there, and you, I can I give updates on my litigation as it progresses. Okay, um, yeah, and you've got the link here on your Twitter at James S's. I do, yeah. So go to James's Twitter and do that, and and absolutely donate if you feel so inclined, because you certainly deserve it. And as you said, it's it's all going to go to your legal costs. It's not going on your new Bugatti. Um, so thanks so much for doing the show, James. <laughs> Pleasure, nice chatting.